Coming up on Life is a Festival. All of us were friends, you know. We all knew each other. That's so cool, by the way. That's yeah. Just, uh, you, you knew the beats, you knew the acid heads, you right. know. It's just pretty cool that you knew all those people. I mean, yeah, these are like I, I've been legends. Lucky. Yeah, I mean, that's now 58 years. I mean, God, I mean, the adventures, is, it's a miracle. We're still functioning. I, it, was, um, it was very adventurous. You know, people came west to the covered wagons, see, but they don't know how bumpy Eslin has been. Yeah, there was a there, you, there's a great story about Hunter S. Thompson in the early days of Eslin, yeah, right? Right. I mean, Hunter was the my grandmother had hired as the caretaker, and uh, <laughs> and a bunch of very muscle beach gay guys tried to kill him down there, throw him over a cliff. Seriously. My name is Eamon Armstrong. And this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Welcome back to the show. Today on Life is a Festival, I am speaking to the mighty Michael Murphy. Mike Murphy, along with Richard Price, founded Esalen in 1962. You may be familiar with Esalen, but if you are not, it was the birthplace of the human potential movement. It's kind of like a retreat center. It's kind of like a seminar. It's kind of like an inn on the coast of Big Sur, these dramatic cliffs. It was a magnet for all sorts of teachers and learners and healers and doers from the 60s to today. On the podcast, we talk about this amazing menagerie of folks who wandered through Esalen's grounds, but from the groundskeeper Hunter S. Thompson in the very beginning, Alan Watts, who taught there, Stanislav Grof, the list, list, the list goes on. In addition to talking about Esalen, we also talk about this idea that is really core to Mike Murphy's thinking, which is evolutionary panentheism. Theism, God, entheism, indwelling, panentheism, universal, and evolutionary, guided through the process of evolution. And when I read Michael's essay about evolutionary panentheism in preparation for this talk, I recognized my own metaphysics expressed really clearly. This is what I believe philosophically, that we each are a unique expression of the divine, and that that divine energy is moving through the world through the evolution of the cosmos through natural selection and through our own personal evolution and how we push ourselves to grow. So that was a beautiful through line to have this conversation. The conversation itself started a little rocky with a little bit of sound issues, and it kind of hit an inflection point where we started talking about Michael Murphy's essay and this particular concept. So I'm actually going to drop you, dear listener, right in with me reading to Mike the passage from his essay that most resonated with me and expressing why it mattered so much. And we're just going to drop you. There's no, there's no what a home run would look like start to this particular podcast. We just drop you right, right into it. 
Michael Murphy is an incredible man. He also wrote The Future of the Body, which is about humans exceeding themselves. It's, a, it's 10,000 studies of humans exceeding what human potential could be. He wrote a number of novels, including the bestseller Golf in the Kingdom. He's a brilliant man, and he's a funny man, and we share a lot of stories on this particular episode. So, without any much more of all of this, I give you the mighty Michael Murphy. Evolutionary panentheism is distinct to pantheism and refers to the doctrine that the divine is both imminent and transcendent in the universe. It provides us with a unifying account of our evolving world's relation to the deepest source of things, an account that makes sense to our spiritual yearnings and desire for ultimate meaning. For it is indeed the case that the entire universe presses to manifest its latent divinity. Then we must share that impetus, which is evident in our desire for the illuminations, delight, self-surpassing love, and sense of eternal freedom and identity we experience in our highest moments. And it does this in a way that neither reductive materialism nor aesthetic denials of the world's emerging Godhead can. It tells us that the universe has an aspiring heart, that human nature is primed for self-surpassing, and that our will to grow is supported by the world's insistent, though often meandering, drive toward a greater existence. What you've written here in this essay is literally my core belief about the world. And I garnered it from the writing of Alan Watts, from my experience with ayahuasca, from my meditation, from Burning Man, from every encounter I have with the widening of my understanding of my own being, I come back to this truth, that the spirit is indwelling and that we are the vehicle of its expression in the world through the process of evolution. Okay, now we have to clarify terms. So, for evolution, I am referring to how it's generally used by evolutionary theorists. And it, it refers among the best of them, not just to the evolution of animal and vegetable species, because it emerged as a fact through Charles Darwin, you know, triggered largely by um, Alfred Wallace, but anyway, it was Darwin's names attached to this as a general theory, but it was then extended by various thinkers, Herbert Spencer and other thinkers, to include also this process of becoming in the inorganic world, from the Big Bang, you know, the formation of galaxies and stars and so forth, and into culture with the advance of humankind through the Paleolithic and Neolithic eras. So, it covers these three great domains of the inorganic, the animal kingdoms, and the human kingdoms advancing onward. Then you have to identify which of those changes you would consider progressive. And to do that, you have to set up criteria of progress. What is progress? So I write about this in the biggest, most ambitious book I wrote called The Future of the Body. But I just drew from, you know, the best and leading thinkers for the general public of, about evolutionary theory. Okay, evolutionary um, theory, it, it refers to all these changes that come in orderly sequences that can be identified and uh, 
more and more understood in their origins and in their how they function and how they work, okay? But uh, now you take the, the animal world. Everyone's heard of a saber-toothed tiger. Well, you could argue that these tigers developed in a way that put themselves out of business. The dinosaurs, who were the dominant life forms for 260 million years or so, you know, into the Jurassic, until they were all wiped out in a very brief period of time. Now, you, you wouldn't say they put themselves out of business, but when the climate changed, probably from this meteor that hit Earth, they're no more. Now, some of them had evolved into birds. They did survive. Mammals, which were much smaller and built lower to the ground, and they then took off in another direction, and out of that came us. So when you look at any sequence in evolution, you, you can see, give criteria by which they advance. For example, warm-bloodedness. If you see that as an attribute uh, in birds and in mammals to win more independence from the vicissitudes, the ups and downs in climate. See, a snake has to go underground and at night. It can't be crawling around. It'll, it doesn't, can't stay warm. Um, many animals, you know, don't have the freedom to move around and advance, certainly like mammals. And then, uh, certainly then we would say another great criterion for progress is the growth of intelligence. And in terms of general intelligence, humans can outmatch any creature, although in certain circumstances, animals can outmatch us. In, you know, in the jungle, I mean, there are all sorts of creatures that can outmatch us for a given time. But in terms of the general progress, look what humans have done. We're the only species that could possibly go to the moon, right? Okay, you can set up these criteria for progress. Now, when it comes to where we're going from here, to progress in spiritual illumination, expanded consciousness, you know, to find self-existent delight, what I firmly believe, I've written this book about it, every human attribute <clears throat> that you can name gives rise to some supernormal uh, super version of itself. No matter what, I chose 12 sets of human attributes. What does supernormal mean in this context? Beyond our normal patterns of functioning, going beyond what is available to most people living on Earth. And is that like from a mutation similar to like an evolutionary biology? You would have a mutation that then enlongs the neck of the giraffe? Well, is no, that, see, is it now, that process? Yeah, now, now, I would argue strongly that from here forward, you know, evolution becomes conscious of itself and us, okay? It's up to us through these transformative practices. Because of our sentience, we become the agents of our own evolution. So yes. it's no longer genetic mutation. Now it's through right. force of will and, and the culture yes. of a society. It's our own insight our, and our own practices that will take us forward. And that includes uh, uh, you know, good child rearing, education, the sorts of things that go on at Esalen these transformative practices. Once you see that, then, and this is what I've been trying to do, is identify ways in which we can facilitate this. How do we broker it? One is to set up examples of long-term training. And I've tried to do this through the, this uh, program of integral transformative practice. 
Esalen, you did, see. Did you did you believe this when you founded Esalen? Was this like a foundational belief in Esalen? Yes, or did it come along as no, you were it, working at Esalen? The reason I started Esalen was I was on fire with this worldview mm. of, I didn't call it uh, evolutionary panentheism, but uh, the, the main influence on me that Amy in this way was uh, Sri Aurobindo, the Indian philosopher, uh, and his evolutionary um, panentheism. So it was informed, by the time I got to Esalen, I, I was fired up and took vows to myself when I was 20. I quit my- What were the vows? To broker this emergence of this fire burning in us, this greater life. And to, you know, I would talk in those years. I was a junior at Stanford, and I, I was doing pre-med. Anyway, I quit my fraternity. I quit pre-med. I moved out on my own. I did graduate, and I've been on fire ever since. But I uh, went to the Shurabindo ashram for a year and a half. I thought that uh, I would... Um, maybe find a way to express it as a college professor. I did two quarters at Stanford of, as a graduate student in philosophy, and it's a whole story. I, I saw this. I wasn't built for it. I actually developed a whole set of neurotic symptoms that were telling me this isn't what you really want to do. Uh, while, you, while you were in graduate school at Stanford? Yeah. My calling was onward. Out of that came Esalen. So, so Esalen has been guided from the very beginning by this idea of the indwelling spirit being made manifest in the world through the evolution by, by the hand of man through extraordinary practices. And so Esalen was a training ground for these practices? Well, it was in part a, a training ground, obviously, but because it's a retreat seminar center out on the edge of the of the world it's not a place for long-term practice it's, you go and you so it's um it's so you drink from the spring and then all right so what okay how have we done it now we have done it in many ways i keep uh thinking about it right now we're making a pivot a deliberate pivot again towards our north star towards where we want to go and this is being catalyzed in large part by our new general manager, Terry Gilby, but by all of us on the board of trustees. It's a realignment. It's like any organization. It, you know, you can wander off course like a ship. You have to get your bearings again. But for me, it's um, involved a tremendous um, looking back and sorting out our successes and our failures and trying to do better. In every decade, we've come up with new things. It's When you look back, Esalen's been very fertile. fertile. So now, among what, what needs to be done, I have a long list. So it's not just training programs. It's also understanding how we work. We can understand, we can broker understandings. It's also we try to set an example in social action um, as you probably know, we've gotten involved in citizen diplomacy and for years. Hey, you did something with the Soviet Union in the yes, 80s. and we're still doing it with the Russians. This has been going on for a long time. And of course, Esalen, you know, brought Boris Yeltsin over here, and he flipped on this trip we brokered. And um, What was what, the secret? How did, you, how did you get Boris to, to, to flip? 
Beg your pardon? What was the secret? What did, what, how did you change his mind? How did you... Well, we didn't do anything. We just, in response to some young people around him, felt it was time for him. They felt he was the, an emergent leader. Hmm. I, um, I, was, I was secretly hoping that you gave Boris Yeltsin acid at Esalen, but I'm no, guessing that's not the case. he never got to Esalen. The, uh, oh, he never, he never got to Esalen? No, no. It was around much of America. We brokered his trip. America itself was his acid. He had never been out of the Soviet Union to see this massive wealth compared to what they have. It just blew his mind, and he went home and quit the Communist Party. So, Eslin, back to Eslin. Um, I have always wanted this and justified it, is that in the transformation of consciousness, it enables us to do the things the world's going to need. For example, ecology, climate change. In citizen diplomacy, that is, citizens can do things that governments will not do. I, I wanted to ask you, do you think that that relationship is reciprocal? So, like, human consciousness rises to the challenge, but do you think that also the challenge rises to be the mill for awakening of human consciousness? Well, it depends. So that it's, like, reciprocal? Well, I think we have to get down into particulars here. I mean, what responds to us? I mean... What are we talking about? Okay, well, well. so going back to this idea of panentheism, am I pronouncing it right, panentheism? Yeah. So you were talking a little while ago about the meteor killed the dinosaurs. And what if the indwelling spirit is both meteor and dinosaurs? And so when you think about evolution, it's not simply the dinosaur is evolving, now the dinosaur has regressed. But there's this sort of massive wiggly thing that is evolution, and it plays against itself through certain challenges. So the meteor that kills the dinosaurs is part of the same evolutionary impulse. I mean, that's great. I mean, uh, yes. Right? Is, yes. That, is that fair? Like, climate yes. change is what we're playing yes. against now. Yes. But uh, I don't think you'd want to say then that we ought to just, okay, take our eye off the ball and let there be a nuclear exchange, which would really shape us up. No, no, but no. no we, 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 don't want, we don't want that to happen. Uh, we want to be proactive. It might happen. And in that sense, you could say that an atomic bomb catalyzed us to get sober about these human relations. We better stop fighting like this. Well, we do have to respond with integrity to the situation. But I, I, I'm coming back to your philosophy of evolutionary yeah. panentheism. And as a worldview, yeah. from that perspective, yes, we believe that we're an individual self that needs to respond to things. And I think that's necessary for the leading edge of evolution. But... In, if the essence is that we are all one, then there's nothing that's necessarily wrong. We just move against the things, the obstacles that come up to us. But the obstacles aren't themselves wrong or bad. They're just the next um, tightening or shaving or molding aspect to our evolutionary progress. Yeah, but life on Earth might end. And then, then it, let's hope on some other planet somewhere. In other words... I don't believe in the inevitability on this planet okay. or in this life. Just because we have this big worldview, it doesn't answer all questions. Mm. But mm, it's okay. better than the other ones that are out there. That's all I'm saying. So we, it's, a, it's a contingent universe. It's, um, you know, it's not a pre-engineered, predetermined thing freedom is built in. Now, what we're getting to now is what every philosophy has to get to 
is the problem of evil. So in, you know, formal thinking and theology and theodicy. So for me, it's, I think of panentheodicy with a panentheistic universe to justify the ways of God to man. It's a mystery. And for me, okay, this is a big question. Why, why this game? And I uh, now now we have to get there. Mm, if you're going to go this in this game? direction, yeah. And I say right now that I've never seen a better answer than Dostoevsky was getting to in the Brothers Karamazov. When Ivan Karamazov, have you read? I haven't, but now that you've brought it up, I well, have a desire. Sort of, I've been wanting to. It's one of the greatest uh, novelists. Some people say the greatest novel ever written. Ivan Karamazov was this questioning intellectual, and his saintly brother. Uh, Alyosha, kind of a saintly character. So Ivan says to him, I won't give you a dime for your God, uh, Alyosha, who allows the death of an innocent child, such as, and he gave an example of a, a kid who stole a loaf of bread because his parents were starving from this rich landlord and uh, set these dogs in, that ripped him apart into pieces. It actually had happened on an estate that Russians had heard about this story. And then Ivan Karamazov, in the book, has a dream. And in the dream, it comes to him that to understand all this, he's going to have to walk up a hill for one billion years. And he says in the dream, to hell with that, and lies down and refuses. And to he understand lied. the nature of evil, he has to walk up a hill a billion years? Yes, and with evil, the understanding of why the world is shot through with suffering and evil, okay? So he lies down for a billion years. And finally, he says, well, all I've got left is I better try climbing. And so in the dream, so he climbed for a billion years. And when he got to, to this point, in three seconds, he understood. Now, that's, what did he understand? He understood why it's like this. But but he understood it, but does he tell us why? Do we get to know, or do we, we have, have to, to walk? Climb the, we have to climb. <laughs> we have to climb for a billion years. Oh, all right. All right. That's well, the point. Yeah. And I think this is true. I think we have to live. In, so I would say ethically, I call myself an existentialist. And I do think, you know, the ones who are the thinkers before, um, well, People like Sartre and Camus, and when I was, you know, in college a long time ago, I'm 89. I mean, this was, you know, 79 years ago at Stanford there, that um, it's up to us how we make this world. God helps those who help themselves. So this is back to good... Because God is indwelling, right? So <laughs> there right. you go. Of course All God right. helps. Definitionally, right. God has to help those who help themselves. That's right. And, and we have to match the challenge with our development and our growth, that we have to become adults, uh, spiritual adults. We can't wait for God to do it, or the, the elves and fairies. Us. It's up to us. So, um, well, and, and your friend, Alan Watts, has a really great way of putting this, where he says that good must always be winning but never win, and evil must always be losing but never lose, otherwise the game's over. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that. I, I don't agree with everything Alan said. Uh, Alan is a lot like, it was a lot like Oscar Wilde. At least half of his creativity was lost in conversation. 
I mean, you know, there are recordings of his voice. You know, they appear in movies now. You know that they, movie they appear in DJ and house music all the time. Our crew, like my community, loves Alan Watts. <laughs> I cannot tell you. Well, the music in his voice. Yeah. I mean, it's no, he's so great. But I don't agree with all his statements, and he in the course of his life, altered some of his statements. So it's which Alan Watts you're listening to, by the way. Really. And um, so anyway. Um, but that's that's a good, that's an important point. Do you know where he ended? Because Alan Watts is pretty canonized amongst like young, hippie, entrepreneur, psychedelic people. And so we listen to Alan Watts and we're like, ah, yes, give us the wisdom. And he, and he's so psychedelic too in the way, the way he speaks. And oh. do we know what the definitive Alan Watts is? Well, uh, uh, no. And he was evolving. And then toward the end of his life, he had a terrible struggle with alcoholism, you know. Oh, and, yeah. I didn't know that. I wasn't aware. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, and he was 56. Uh, and um, so he was evolving, and you wondered, not always progressing. Oh, so comes, back, Alan, comes back to I, our I theme. I knew Alan from the time he was 36 until he died at 56. I knew him. Generous, gifted catalytic to countless people but uh some of his formulations that that one would say that we're doomed to this stage of our development oh, now my yeah, teacher share binder would say well he posited that there, there now we're evolution in the ignorance and we could get to e- evolution in the knowledge that oh, is there an uh evolution after enlightenment so to speak. Like an evolution where we know we're evolving and we know how to evolve, yes. and so we do it consciously? Yes. Like now, that's a consciously? grand speculation, obviously. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't put in the always. You know, that they're always... always he's, he was a much more, I would say, a deeper thinker, broader, and it, it's an open universe. But when people push him hard about why, he would always come back to Leela. It's Leela? Sanskrit mm. for play. Oh. This, but it's play that's more like extreme sport. It's, this is sport that uh, is only for the most athletic. It's this more, is play only for the most playful? Well, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm up for well, that. Well, uh, uh, playful, yes, but much more like uh, football than tiddlywinks. Mm. Much more like base jumping, if you know what that is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, than, uh, like than ping pong. I mean, it's if the, the if, true test of one's metal. Well, the Levi risking life and it's, limb. It's terrifying. I mean, look what's going on. I mean, in the world of suffering. See, we live in the most elegant bubble, Amen. People like us. Oh, okay, don't you, I you know? You grew it. up in Carmel and Santa Fe, for God's sake. I grew up here in California. We are. The kings and queens of la, uh, la-di-da. I mean, compared... <laughs> the kings and queens of la-di-da. Ca- That's can, awesome. I'm put that on my what Twitter. If, what if you had to... What, what, I mean, think of what it's like in Afghanistan. Or, oh God, yeah. or in the Middle East. I mean, it's these wars, torture. It's terrifying. And, we, and it's so easy to forget that here. You know? Here, yeah. So we can't... Alan didn't fully embrace that and now he was always on the right side of issues he was early in ecology very early uh and he he brokered uh the coming of Taoism and zen buddhism in the 40s and 50s into the west he, he, was, he started the zen center in san francisco right no is that not him 
Or is no, that Suzuki? Suzuki Roshi. That was Suzuki. Okay. And Richard Baker Roshi. But he hung out. It's around the corner from my house. So he, Alan Watts hung out at that one, right? Oh, yeah. I there mean, was, uh, they, all of us were friends. You know, we all knew each other. That's so cool, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you, you knew the beats. You knew the acid heads. You right. know, it's just pretty cool that you knew all those people. I mean, yeah, these are like I, I've been very legends. Lucky. Yeah, cutting right through all the, uh, I mean, that's now 58 years. I mean, God, I mean, the adventures is it's a miracle. We're, we, we're still functioning. I, it's, it's, you know, it was, um, it was very adventurous. You know, people came west of the covered wagons, see, but they don't know how bumpy Eslin has been. Yeah, there was a, there, you, there's a great story about Hunter S. Thompson in the early days of Eslin, yeah, right? Right. I mean, Hunter was the, my grandmother had hired as the caretaker, and, uh, <laughs> and a bunch of very muscle beach gay guys tried to kill him down there throw him over a cliff seriously and there was in big sir at, at one of those property, spectacular cliffs that's the yeah. property at our property <laughs> see you see my family owns all that property yeah that's why it's there so um it uh and there was a lot of gunfire and uh, i had wanted to start eslin and my grandmother said no we can never give it to Michael. He will immediately give it to the Hindus. So um, she was a strong Victorian lady. She'd made most of the money on uh, my father's side of the family. But then a few years passed, and there was Hunter and gunfire and uh, unbelievable chaos on this property. And uh, my father said to his mother, my grandmother, Vinny, if, if we don't let Michael do it, we'll all be in jail together. I mean, so that was how, so you could argue, wow. you could argue that without Hunter, we wouldn't have had Esalen. Wow. It, it broke, it, it broke it all open. I mean, who knows, but I'm, but Hunter was um, 21, 6'3", broad-shouldered, lean, mean, and fully armed. He had an arsenal. He had uh, tracer bullets, fire them into the night, and was wanting to be a writer, and uh, much admired a book my brother had written, which had been a bestseller. And, uh, I mean, a, a tremendous personality. It, it was like Oscar Wilde armed with a full arsenal. Out of the hills of Kentucky came a second Oscar Wilde. I mean, he's, I mean, you know, he's hilarious, a lot of the, his stuff. I, I think that's what makes it so good, you know, is because it's so hilarious. Because it's so, you know, he, the term gonzo is Hunter. Like, he's gonzo. so silly and gonzo. wild and weird. No, gonzo, and, yeah. Yeah, he is gonzo. Yeah. You know? No, it was great. And um, anyway, well, listen, where are we going here? We're wandering all over the place. So no, I mean, we are evolving, but not necessarily progressing. Yeah. Hey, this was the point of the conversation was to do this because I wanted to talk about just some of the energy that created Esalen. And I really wanted to discuss this through line of this indwelling spirit. Yeah. And I think since we just have, since we're, we have a shorter amount of time left, I wanted to bring in, because I asked my community, I asked the listeners what they want to know about. So I want to bring in a little bit of the idea of where Esalen is heading now. And you and I have met before once at Burning Man. We were introduced by um, our mutual friend, Chip Conley, who is also on the board of Esalen, as well as Burning Man, who is also the godfather of this podcast. But I asked Chip what question he would ask you in the context of this interview. Oh, good. Yeah. And Chip's question, which is predictably Chip, by the way. But here is what Chip said. What do you feel your greatest legacy is with respect to Esalen's role in the world? Well, I, I think it's this primal aspiration, the reason why we're doing this, 
that's what I brought, plus, of course, the property, you know. <laughs> so the, the matching of the gift of the vision to the property, plus, you know, my willingness to, um, on the one hand, put up with so much, to allow so much. One of the secrets of Eslin, I think, is that it's comparativism. It's you can compare practices, worldviews. It's an open forum for this. And our thing going in was no one captures the flag. We have to have an What does that mean, no one captures the flag? No one takes over, like Fritz Perls really did want Gestalt to reign supreme down there. Oh, okay, so there's no worldview that that metastasizes. Okay, except this worldview of um, a very open worldview. So this whole idea of spiritual but not religious. But we had to be, and Dick and I... Dick Price and I, show, uh, we had both been vaccinated against cult. I'd been vaccinated twice. As in you were in two cults? Well, uh, I would call neither of them a cult, but the cult behavior. The first was a, a circle of students at Stanford around this charismatic graduate student. And it um, finally a group of them in the core of this thing wandered off and didn't take me, they, the, the leader, didn't he knew I wouldn't go with him, and it in a, in a way was a cult of five or six people. So it doesn't stand out as a cult you would have ever but, heard but, of. But but the behavior, yes, and, and the hallmarks of cult. Okay, then in the Arbindo Ashram, big, healthy place around this great Indian leader. He'd been an Indian independence leader and had been jailed by the British, and then a, a real intellect and a deeply realized mystic. And this philosophy, this number one influence on me. And there I was, very healthy, and his, he had died, and this teacher, the mother, called the mothers, um, Amira Elfasa. Um, so healthy, good for me in, in many ways, but it had a huge cult aspect to it. So um, too much for me, too much allegiance to a tight, tight, version of Aurobindo's magnificent evolving work, okay? All right, so Dick had uh, had his own vaccination. So in answer to your question, I would say my- Is this Chip's question about the legacy? Yeah, my willingness and ability to allow, but okay, sometimes too slow to set limits. So, but people come to try different practices that are there. You know, we do now, it's down to 350 seminars a year down there. There used to be a 500. And different worldviews, which are entertained in our, our Center for Theory and Research, different behaviors. It's kind of like Mardi Gras all the time there. Burning Man and Esalen share this thing of Mardi Gras. And because we insisted always on anonymity down there, we we don't put the pictures of celebrities. An awful lot of famous people have been there. And, um, it's like Burning Man in that way, too. Yeah. Do, do you think Burning Man is in some ways kind of carrying the torch of Esalen in certain regards? Well, we, we are coming, uh, we're kissing cousins. Uh, their leadership corps has been meeting down there recently. And uh, anyway, uh, different states of consciousness. So in the act of comparison, we open up we can open up to more of the world. And also, we can, it, 
is a solvent that dissolves the hegemony of certain practices and ideas. So it's, it dissolves a lot of this clinging and cult-like to inadequate ideas and inadequate worldviews. This actually reminds me, uh, there's there's a figure who came through Esalen who ended up getting a, somewhat of a cult following, um, which is Timothy Leary. Well, there's there have been several through Esalen with cult followings. Tim helped abort the whole psychedelic exploration. And of course, it wasn't just Tim. The 60s aborted it. I, and, but he, him preaching that LSD every Sunday, well, we saw one disaster after another. So it went into hibernation. And, and now slowly it's coming back in. And Esalen has preserved the coals at the back of the hearth. You know, Michael Pollan's uh, new book, Changing Your Mind, um, good, great book. Uh, you know, and now it's coming back in. But like so much that had to be burned out of our system that was in the hippie world. I mean, the hippie world had a genius for glamorizing ineptitudes. I mean... <laughs> That's really well-spoken. Esalen is, is an example of this. We, you know, we fuck up, and this is, oh, it's, isn't it great? And then you glamorize it. Sugar-coated fuck-ups. You know, it's... It, I, we could go down the list. And Esalen um, had so many. Now we have a general manager there who's cut through so much of this the best GM we've ever had. I mean, for example, there was this constant taboo against money. Here, here was the explosion of the 60s that Esalen got caught up in with sexual freedom. So people could confess their sexual things. They'd, you know, made love to an animal or, you know, they'd... I don't think it's called making love when it's with an animal. <laughs> whatever it is. Well, that, no, some of these characters would say, no, I'd love that sheep and okay whatever. like it was truly I, loving all right fair no, enough it was well that's one kind of love but um <laughs> it was um uh and, and then you uh, glamorize everything but anyway this thing was they're glamorizing certain parts so the property down there people coming you know from day one we've been oversubscribed we've never needed an audience we've needed to say no more than yes to people wanting to be there but so it allowed us to be incompetent. I could name well the the over reliance on drugs. Um, did did you ever do acid with Timothy Leary? Well, with Dick Alpert, who became okay. a Ramdas. Who's Ramdas? Yeah, and and Tim was down there. But no, I well I LSD from Aldous Huxley, and uh, oh, that's his, another great luminary who came he, through well, that no, space. He, yeah. He's the best, though. Well, he's, he's at my the favorite. top up there. I mean, there have been a number that I would put on the top tier. I mean, Aldous uh, helped us with our an initial language because um, to explain it to people in 1962, I, I couldn't talk about Hegel or German idealism or about evolutionary panentheism. But this language of the human potential that in his essays, the last few years of his life, was a mediating language for me. I, I would say Huxley and Abe Maslow gave us a lot of language. What 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 Huxley essay would you most recommend for well, the listener to check out? Well, all of his essays out? on human potentialities. There's a book that collected those essays. I forget okay. the title. I'll, I'll find it and put it in oh, the no, show notes. No, you can go right up to Amazon and find them. So those eight or ten essays, and then Island, 
which uh, beautiful book. His last novel, and of course, the Doors of Perception. Um, once he made the turn toward the perennial philosophy, the perennial philosophy. What is the perennial philosophy? Well, yeah, well, it's it's the title of one of his books, and um, it's the idea that the core of all religions is this core religion that is the same, which is not true. It's at the core of all the religions was a mystical core, you could argue. But it was framed in different ways, and it was grew out of different aspects, different kinds of mystical experience. Higher consciousness comes like a, a gem, different facets. Mm. See, and, you know, when you talk about emptiness in a Buddhist sense and getting rid of thought and what that leads to, nirvikalpa samadhi, these ecstasies without any contents, is a different path than mystics who are devotional say Ramakrishna or Teresa of Avila, of this union with the divine and ecstatic ecstasy of merging with the beloved Rumi. Mm, I That's love Rumi. different. Yeah. That's different than following Ramana Maharshi, you know, who, you know, came through the highest form of Vedanta, although he was just 16. Anyway, so the religions are born out of this drive to alignment with beyond but they've done it in very different ways and they've come surrounded by what William James called overbeliefs. Hmm. just because you open to the divine doesn't mean you have to believe in the Virgin Mary or that Jesus rose from the dead which he did not I mean, all the mythologies yeah well all the mythologies that form around and um even with these very sophisticated forms of Buddhism and Vedanta, which are among the highest, most free of BS, free of mythology, nevertheless, they have their perspective. And it's not the only perspective into the divine. Not the only. Although, I would say the major supernormal disclosures, these higher openings, all of them, serve and are integral to this higher consciousness and higher human nature that's trying to emerge in us. So the deliverance from Zazen or from Tibetan Dzogchen, this idea of getting beyond thought, dropping thought, or at least like Vipassana in, in Theravada Buddhism, observing and letting this observation open out into white space all around your thoughts. You know, you have thoughts, and to learn you're not, that you're not your thoughts is such a liberating thing. And uh, part of our whole thing with the Confluent Education is to get that into people's consciousness starting in kindergarten. That's hard then. You you have to learn to think. You have, It's complex. There's a, a nice tangent right here, which is about meditation. What you said, um, and this is on Eslin's podcast, was that psychedelics... Um, they were, they were interesting, and you could see them as something that, that catalyzed someone's experience, but that they didn't compare in any way to meditation, as far as Not for me. I mean, they were an order of, several orders of magnitude below, but I saw uh, their transformative power with a number of people. But the idea of turning, the, turning them into your way. Now, there are people who do this microdosing and all. It's not my way. And God bless them, and I support the exploration, and 
Who knows? Something might come out of it. But I don't want it to be central to Esalen, and it's not been my way, mm. period. So others can do it, and others want to do it. We've been, though, a friend to this cause. I mean, we've had conferences. We've supported people. Uh, Stan Groff lived at Esalen for 14 years and uh, developed his holotropic breathing, which is a, it kind of mimics the psychedelic. And he was one of the great bridge people. Let's say from Tim Leary to now, no one was more central than Stan. Mm, yeah. I mean, he, I mean, his books, he would do two, sometimes three month-long soirees at Esalen and get together, say, 20 world leaders. That was the age when, when there were these people. And Stan was our principal convener, I would say, from 72 to 86. Mm. So, um, but you can't live by bread alone. You can't live by psychedelics alone. You can't. Well, this is all the time we have today because I could talk to you for a lot longer about all of these subjects. So thank you for having me in your home. Thank you for sharing so much about Esalen's history. There's so much more to learn. And I think my audience is aware of Esalen, now knows a lot more. And some of the characters you've talked about, like I love that you had Hunter S. Thompson and Aldous Huxley and Alan Watts and Stanislav Grof and like all of these, all of these luminaries at play in this beautiful... There are uh, a lot of stories, the characters that fill our lives through all this period. Carlos Castaneda, our whole relationship to Carlos was something else, you know, starting in 64, and it goes on and on. I mean, uh, Jeff Kripal, our chairman now, wrote a big book, by far the big, the by far the best book about Esalen, and, um, you know, it's six or 700 pages, and you go through there, you... On a single read, you could get indigestion. I mean, there's so much has happened, but it's been over 57, 58 years. But anyway, good talking to you, and uh, good luck with your series, and all your questions are right on it. Well, thank right you. Right on it. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you liked the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival, and I'll see you on the dance floor. <clears throat> How did the podcast go? How was this experience today having this conversation? How was it for you? Well, no, it's been fun. Yeah. 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 Was, no, it, was it? it. Is it, is it no, uh, you're, no, I, no, these are, these are the, these are the central questions. Really? It's, it's good. And I'm glad you, uh, you know, prepped up for this because I do get people coming along and God, you can't even get started. Mm. You know, can't say something like evolutionary panentheism. Well, that's the main and thing I, I wanted I, to talk about. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's too bad. I mean, there's so much um, looking for quick fixes, you know. So to get a quick thing about Esalen, and God, some of these characters who've come by, it's almost down to just grunting at one another. I mean, it's too bad. Um, but thank you, I mean, for bringing so much to the party. Oh, well, really. thank you so much. Yeah. It's been a fun party. Great. <laughs> <laughs>